You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Welcome everyone, my name is Tukling Winwu and I'm very happy to invite you to this episode of Transformative Podcast with Professor Mokorzata Fidelis. Mokorzata Fidelis is Associate Professor of History at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She is the author of Women, Communism and Industrialization in Post-War Poland that came out with Cambridge UP in 2010 and of Imagining the World from Behind the Iron Curtain, Youth and the Global Sixties in Poland that came out in 2022 with Oxford UP. Professor Fidelis's articles have appeared in journals including Slavic Review and the Journal of Women's History. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Lynn, and thank you for inviting me. I am very happy to be here. So let me start with the title of your last book, Imagine the World from Behind the Iron Curtain, Youth and the Global Sixties in Poland. How was the world imagined by the youth and socialist Poland? And how were their perceptions and imaginaries translated into their behavior and connected to the global 1960s? Let me first say a few words about why imagination was so important at that time. Young people in Poland had limited opportunities to travel abroad during the 60s, to interact with foreigners in person. In general, the 1950s and the 1960s was the time when the greater youth mobility across borders that we are familiar with was just starting. So the majority of young people learned about the contemporary world from the media, especially from youth magazines and other products of popular culture. When we look at youth magazines or other popular magazines in Poland at the time, we find that there is a limited political and ideological content. On the contrary, these publications tended to feature a lot of material associated with international youth culture, material that you could find in youth magazines in the West. They would have reports on youth fashion, gossip about celebrities, photos of rock stars, photos of movie stars, including Hollywood stars reports on youth lifestyles in other countries. So the magazines provided a way for young Polish readers to connect to the global community of youth. And we have to keep in mind that these were not some kind of clandestine underground publications. Youth magazines were published by the state, by official youth organizations. In fact, during the Stalinization in the mid-1950s, there was a conscious effort on the part of the communist regime in Poland to depart from explicit ideological messages that were part of the Stalinist model and to recognize young people as individuals with diverse needs, including the need for leisure and entertainment. So ironically, the socialist state facilitated many of the transnational connections it facilitated the global 60s in Poland. Of course, different groups of youth had different opportunities to interact with the global youth culture. In my book, I write about urban youth, especially students, 
who were very much connected to the modern world through living in an urban environment, having more access to consumer goods, attending student clubs, taking part in all kinds of debates about Marxism and international politics. But I also write about young people in the villages who traditionally had less opportunity to connect to the outside world. But that began to change over the course of the long 60s. So, for example, rural youth created their own clubs in the village, the so-called club cafes that promoted a version of cosmopolitan urban culture. However, what I would like to emphasize is that young people, regardless of the social background, had this desire to be part of the larger world and to participate in youth culture because it was something new during the time. And they enacted that desire in different ways. They enacted that desire through consumer choice, non-conformist lifestyles, and also through alternative interpretations of Marxism, alternative to the one promoted by the state. In your first book, you examine Stalinism in Poland through the lens of women's labor. And the second book is a shift, both in terms of time and space, because you show how the youth under Gomuka's government tried to relate to the outside world by means of culture and consumption, as you mentioned. Could you say more about what motivated you to turn to this different moment in the socialist regime and to expand your focus spatially? Did this change in approach help you reformulate your research interests and did it affect the way you see and understand socialist Poland? That's a great question. The two books are different, but both of them communicate the same message or the same goal. At least I would like to think in this way. And the goal is to understand Polish communism as a lived experience, as a human experience in the first place. I put diverse ordinary people at the center of the story in both books. People from different social groups rather than political elites. Each book explores the interaction between individuals and larger forces. These larger forces can be the state, communist ideology, but they can also be local cultures, as in the case of rural youth or as in the case of coal mining communities in Silesia that I describe in my first book when I talk about women miners. Those larger forces also include global, cultural, social and political upheavals. And that's where the second book comes in. So in other words, I am challenging two traditional ways of thinking about communism. The first one is the challenge to the totalitarian paradigm. And I will say about this more in a minute. And the second one is studying communism within the boundaries of a particular nation state. So the first book rejected the Cold War approach to study communist states, which assumed that post-1945 Eastern Europe was totalitarian. Scholars who use the totalitarian paradigm usually study the ruling party because they believe that the state is all-powerful and that the state suppresses any agency that comes from below. Um, so according to this paradigm, society has, is atomized, incapable of contesting or resisting the power of the state. So there is no point in studying social actors such as women. In my first book, 
I explored the experience and agency of women workers to show that they actually negotiated, contested, and shaped state policies. But at the same time, I situated women and the state predominantly within the domestic context, within the Polish state. In my second book, I go farther. I focus on young people from different social backgrounds, both men and women, but I go beyond the narrow national context. I look at the interaction between local and global forces and how the understanding of global issues was used by actors in Poland to propel their agendas. In my second book, I show that it's not enough to reject the totalitarian paradigm. Many scholars have been doing that for a long time. We also need to broaden the context in which we study experiences, people's experiences of communism. We cannot study Polish communism within the narrow national boundaries or even the boundaries of the Eastern Bloc because the world was and is interconnected. Global connections accelerated during the 60s because of the new technologies, the media, television, airplane travel, and also because of the changing geopolitical context. Decolonization comes to mind. The communist world was not isolated from any of this. It was part of global networks and global exchange of ideas. So speaking about these different regimes, right, and paradigms, it seems to me that the historiography on socialism in Eastern Europe, both within the region and beyond it, is becoming more focused on the social. And it adds nuances to our understanding of socialism instead of examining it through a narrowly defined political history. The ways in which historians examine the social, I believe, reflects to some extent broader changes in post-89 Poland, where Polish society is slowly reinventing itself, not necessarily any longer vis-a-vis or against socialism. How do you interpret these developments? Where do you see the debate or turn to the social stand today and where is it headed? Well, first of all, I understand the social as encompassing the social and the cultural. When I study social identities, I study them together with people's emotional worlds and everyday practices. And second, I would like to think that the significance of the social understood in this way, in socio-cultural terms, is no longer debated. There is more than enough evidence, research, to demonstrate that this oversimplified political framework or totalitarian framework The idea of the all-powerful state distorts reality and makes communism a convenient tool in the hands of politicians today. I also think that the social and the cultural are especially important when we study communism. And that's because those perspectives help us humanize people who lived during that particular time, who lived under the system that they did not choose. Polish historiography, as you well know, has been resistant to incorporating social and cultural perspectives on communism. But it is impossible to separate those perspectives from a meaningful study of communism or any historical era. And we can see this in Poland as we speak. There is a new wonderful scholarship on 
social and cultural history in Poland that also integrates politics in a new way, politics through the lens of the lower classes. And that's the people's history or Historia Ludowa. This is the genre of history that is very much developing and blooming in Poland right now. It doesn't pertain only to communism, but also to other periods in Polish history. And Polish scholars of the younger generation are turning to society and culture to understand political change. I would just like to end by asking you about a new project. I know that you've been developing a new research, and I would just love to hear more about that. Oh, yes. So this is an exciting time for me. I am starting a new book project. It's about the late 1980s and early 1990s in Poland, the time of the transition to democracy, but also the time of different possibilities. In my new book, I want to capture the moment when the shape of Polish democracy was contested among different groups. I want to depart from this conventional binary between the solidarity opposition and the communist party that dominates most of the existing accounts of the transition in Poland. When people write about that time, as you well know, they tend to reduce everything to the conflict between those two camps. You were either pro-solidarity or you were pro-communist. In reality, the social and political landscape was more colorful and more complicated. In my new book, I hope to look at three movements from below that resist this kind of rigid binary. And the first one is a popular movement to protect reproductive rights that came under attack by the Catholic Church and the solidarity-dominated government in the early 1990s. Abortion was banned in Poland in 1993. The second is the popular defense of secular education against the introduction of Catholic religious instruction in public schools. And then the third movement I want to look at is a powerful wave of national strikes, including the largest teachers' strike in Polish history in the summer of 1993. As in all my work, I hope to ground my arguments about these social movements in the framework of everyday life and the challenges that individuals and groups faced as they adjusted again to larger forces, in this case, the unprecedented systemic change on all levels. That sounds amazing. I'm very much looking forward to reading your new book and the articles that will come out of this project. Thank you so much for joining me today and for this wonderful conversation. You have been listening to the Transformative Podcast produced by Redset in Vienna. <laughs>